I thank your pastor and all the leaders for the privilege of bringing the gospel to you today. And Mrs. Ortland and I bring you greetings from Emmanuel Church in Nashville. If you're ever in Music City, USA on a Sunday morning, come worship with us. You'll love the band. <laughs> Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's Word. I'm so struck by those three words in verse 38. I am sure. When I look within myself, I am unsure. When I look around at social trends, I am unsure. When through the gospel I look to him, I am sure. Those three words. That is where God wants to take every one of us today. Trusting in him, defying everything that's against us, by faith alone, we will say, I am sure. And then we can face anything. The truth is, we will see our lives in one of two ways. One way was what 
Jean-Paul Sartre said in his play, No Exit. He said, you are your life and nothing else. What does Sartre mean by that? He meant you are what you make of yourself. You are the sum total of your choices. You can never take a break because you are all you have to fall back on. Nothing beyond yourself belongs to you. Your fate is in your own hands entirely, and you have no excuses, and when you die, that's it. You are your life, and nothing else is factored in. That's one way to see your life. There's another way. This other way of seeing your life becomes real when through the gospel you realize there is more to you than you. It's when a new sense enters your heart through the gospel, you realize God in Christ is the ally of his enemies. He is the defender of the undeserving. He is the friend of the unfriendly. A new sense enters your heart. I have no excuses. I have no defense. There is no justification in God's moral universe for someone like me. But Christ has written my story into his story. Sartre said, you are your life and nothing else. And when we receive Christ with the empty hands of faith, we can say, I am in Christ and nothing else. So every one of us will see our lives in one of these two ways, either having to make ourselves and justify ourselves and satisfy ourselves and rescue ourselves, or accepting Jesus as our complete redefinition and our new confidence and our endless adventure into more and more and more of the love of God. That's what this passage is about. This passage reveals that God loves you personally. Yes, God loves the human race globally. It's wonderfully true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But it's also true God holds you in his mighty and loving hands. God enthuses about your future. If you are in Christ, the deepest, most rugged, most enduring meaning of your story, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done against you, the deepest meaning, what is actually happening in your life is the overruling love of God in Christ. And here is all he asks of you. It's all you can do, that you would be willing to be loved endlessly by Almighty God above. He asks that you would cherish his love for you in your heart the way a husband longs for that from his bride.
But God himself at the cross removes forever every reason why he shouldn't love you. He loves you personally so that you will love him personally. We also see in this passage, looking at it as a totality, that God loves you powerfully. The love of God is not a weak, pleading love that might or might not work out. If you are in Christ, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. We have all sinned against him, and many of our sins are deeply ingrained habits. They're deep inside us. We sin when we're capable of a better choice. We sin against the plain teachings of the Bible. We sin even against the help of the Holy Spirit within us, and not even that stops God from loving us. The love of God is his powerful, filled with cheerful resolve, determination to love you endlessly. And there is no equal to the love of God, not even you. So if you're turning to the Lord Jesus with a willingness to be loved by him, he promises to love out of you everything against his love, and he promises to love into you everything receptive of his love. He promises to love you into heaven. He loves you powerfully. In these verses, the Apostle Paul asks four unanswerable questions. He helps us think it through so that we can funnel down to saying, I am sure. He asks four unanswerable questions about this personal and powerful love of God for the undeserving. First question, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? I love that. I love the happiness of it. I love the defiance of it, the confidence of it. That is where God wants to take every one of us. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Bible is not asking who can be against us. We see a lot against us. Our sin is against us. The world is against us. Satan is against us. And if we try to go up against all that, and this time we're thinking, you know, I really mean it this time, we're kidding ourselves. So Paul doesn't ask what is against us. He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for you. He is not neutral about you. He is not scrutinizing you, looking for a reason to say, gotcha. He is for you. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. And if you and I honestly say, we don't deserve him, to God, that is not 
a reason not to love us, to God, that is a reason to love us all the more. It's just how he thinks. God, for all that God is right now at this moment, at all times, at all levels, everywhere, God is thinking of you. He is for you. He is managing reality to your eternal advantage right now. For your future to disappear, God would have to disappear. So let's settle it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? <laughs> That's amazing. Where did God not spare his own son? At the cross. What happened at the cross? The father abandoned him. The Father forsook him and gave him up. When all our sin was poured out upon our substitute, God did not rescue him. He cried out in pain, God did not answer. He prayed, God did not hear. That's what happened at the cross. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, here is Paul's question about that. How then will God not freely give us all things if God gave us his most sacred and costly gift at the cross? Is God going to start nickel and diming us now? Is that what we should expect, a reluctant God? After the cross, it doesn't make sense. So what's the point? The point is, If God gave up his son for us all, there is no limit to God's love for us. We may wonder. We do wonder. If we look at ourselves with any realism and honesty, how far will God go with me? At what point might God say to me, okay, <laughs> that's it. I'm done. I knew you'd be a headache, but I didn't bargain for this. You've gone too far. The deal's off. It's simply unthinkable. Why? Because we deserve to be treated well. No, because Jesus was abandoned in our place so that we will never be abandoned. God is as committed to you as he is committed to his own son because he gave his son for you. If you belong to Christ, you are in God's love just as deeply as Christ is in God's love. And it has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with the cross where God sealed his love for you. God is rich with love. And he's a big spender. 
God does not limit his love for you. God unlimits his love for you. We're the ones who love cautiously. We're the ones who look at others through a lens of cost-benefit calculation. And we pull out if it starts costing us too much. That's how we love, but God loves with God-sized love. Having given for you his son, God plans to give you everything. Here's what's packed inside all things, those words. Your own sinless and sparkling personality with your own resurrected immortal body in a renewed universe with all the redeemed enjoying God at full tilt forever. <laughs> Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He did not say simply, I go to prepare a place. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. So the moment you step into heaven, you'll look around and, and you will not say, well, okay, I can get used to this. You will say, no way. He thought of me. He prepared this with me in mind. And you will enter into the company of the redeemed forever. Every single day you'll be meeting amazing new people and everyone will like you. All of that is packed inside all things. That's your future. Third question. Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? There's a lot of condemning religion in the world. We have condemning thoughts between our two ears. God does not want you feeling condemned and precarious and crisis-y. God, here's where God wants to take you. Okay, so I'm an aging hippie from 1960s California, and I'm not sorry. <laughs> so I describe where does God want to take us? What is this path he takes us on in his faithfulness? I describe it as the fourfold path to spiritual enlightenment. First step on the fourfold path, moral indifference. It's how we're born. Many people live their lives this way. Life is a playground. You make your own rules. Right and wrong don't matter. All that matters is winning. Now, some people living in moral indifference discover that really doesn't work. So they move from the first to the second step in the fourfold path. They move from moral indifference to moral concern, moral earnestness. That is not a Christian conversion. 
It has social advantages, but it's not a Christian conversion. In moral concern, these people now, they look back at the people living in immoral indifference. They don't like what they see. I mean, they care about doing the right thing. They're upright people. And some of these people of moral concern move on to the third step, and that is moral despair because they fail. Their temptations, their backgrounds, their weaknesses are too strong. They discover they're not moral people. They discover that their habits and so forth are too strong. They, they, they discover that virtue isn't as simple as a raw choice. They can't stop. And when we face ourselves honestly, we do go into moral despair. Now, the fourth step is people living in moral despair, some of them hear the gospel. And they look beyond themselves, and they come to Christ. They discover in the gospel, God loves moral failures. God does not condemn moral failures who come to Christ. God justifies them. He pronounces them righteous, righteous failures. And because it is God who justifies them through Christ, no one can de-justify them. There is no Supreme Court above God to reverse his verdict. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. And that is what everyone, everyone in the world today must know, that God is like this. God receives the unworthy through Christ and for his sake. The people in moral indifference need to wake up. The people of moral concern need to fail. The people of moral despair need to know what a friend we have in Jesus. And the people who are putting their hope in Christ, we all need to throw our heads back and laugh the laugh of faith, defying everything that's against us, including everything within ourselves that's against us. It is God who justifies. God chose sinners as his elect, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Means God's elect could be charged with serious wrongdoing. So why did God choose the bad people rather than the good people? Why? Because God's deepest purpose is to honor his son as a successful savior. The father wants the son to shine as the world's greatest specialist in hopeless cases. God wasn't stuck with us. He got first dibs, and he chose us so that everybody could see Jesus is the only world-class savior. Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's already final between the Father and the Son. Therefore, your worst sin cannot keep you from God as you bring that to Jesus because God's whole point is to embrace sinners who come to Jesus. You can bring it. You can bring all of it. You can bring the worst of it. 
Christ Jesus, the friend of sinners, is at the right hand of God. I love how Martin Luther, the reformer, strengthened his own heart when accusing thoughts entered in. You, you understand this. We all understand this. Those dark, accusing, tormenting thoughts, the, the we wish we could, you know, do over moments in our past. It troubles us. Here's how Martin Luther responded to that. When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no. For I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner with your own sword, I will cut your throat, for Christ died for sinners. And as often as you object that I am a sinner, that's as often as you remind me of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders, not on my shoulders, lie all my sins. So when you say I'm a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. <laughs> that's how we fight. Fourth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul takes an inventory of real life in this real world. He takes a hard look at all the enemies of our happiness, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, for starters. But do these horrible experiences prove that Christ no longer loves us. So this list of sufferings here in verse 35, guess what? That's life in this world for people God loves. Look at verse 36. For your sake, in other words, because we're living for Christ, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That imagery, sheep to be slaughtered. The world as one vast slaughterhouse. That is not a pretty picture, but it is true to life. Verse 37, but in all these things, not in some, but in all, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When we suffer, we weep. 
when we suffer, we feel it. But the love of God is greater than our pain, more lasting, more enduring, deeper than our pain, and He will not let us go. We are more than conquerors by going through horrible experiences, and the love of God keeps us true, not our love for God, but His love for us. And we get through that, we come out the other side, and we actually love the Lord more than we did before we went through that hardship. That's how we're more than conquerors. We're weak, unsteady, but to our own amazement, we get back up again and we find ourselves saying, I have no idea what just happened to me. That was awful. But one thing it can't be is the hatred of God. I mean, God loves me. That's the bedrock under my feet, even as I'm getting beaten up by life. And God must have some kind of loving purpose in this somehow. So I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and find out how God is going to redeem this mess because He will. I'm sure of it. God is faithful. Nothing not even this will ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, friends, we are not victims. We conquer by believing in the love of God as the deeper reality underneath everything that's against us. Our sufferings are not robbing us. Our sufferings are taking us deeper into the love of God. They always will. Let's pray. Now, gracious Spirit of God, we ask you to seal this word to all our hearts so that we walk out of church today and our hearts are sure of you. For that we pray in the holy name of Christ. Amen.